The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. This beautiful afternoon uh, and early evening that we can sit together and study your word. Pray that you'd be at the center of our time now and that you'd speak clearly to our hearts about the greatness of our salvation uh, through faith in Christ. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you all have a handout on Romans 8. My uh, desire is to go through the whole chapter uh, tonight and then go back and, God willing, in future weeks to study it carefully. And, you know, even tonight, perhaps to go into some details. But to that end, I actually gonna, I'm going to ask you to just not look at the outline that I've given you at all. Because I have all kinds of cross-references and all that. Well, you can look at it, but it's just going to die. I know if I do it the way I've done in the outline, there's no chance I'm going to get through the whole chapter. So what I, I would suggest is that you either use your device or your Bible and just open up to Romans 8. And let's just look at, let's look at the text. Hey, Eric, could you close that? Eric, could you close that door for me? Can you give it to me? Um, and so I, I just propose that we go through um, all 39 verses and, and just talk about this great chapter and get a, an overview, just fly over it. And so we'll stop at certain, you know, we'll go through the through the sections, stop at certain sections and talk about it and we'll walk through it. And in that case, I, I feel like we have a good chance of doing a good flyover. And then uh, then we'll take my handout and we'll go into more a little more detail. And then in future weeks, perhaps even more detail. Now, in the handout, I do say this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. I, I don't know if that's true. It's a qualitative kind of judgment. Um, people who know me know that I tend to think that the greatest chapter in the Bible is whatever one I'm working on right now, you know, whatever I'm preaching on. Yeah, that's just, this is just amazing. This is just so great. Isaiah 40 is amazing. Uh, it's a great, great chapter. But Romans 8 just has some great themes. And so I, I would like to just read through it. So let's start. Um, and if we could get someone to read Romans 8, 1 through um, 11, we'll start with that first section, and then I'll just make some comments, some observations, open it up for uh, you folks to make comments and observations. We'll just move through the chapter that way. And I don't know how long that's going to take, but I, I hope that it'll take less than an hour, and then we can go back and look at details. So who'd like to read Romans 8, 1 through 11? Okay, that's fantastic. So this chapter, I think the purpose of this chapter overall is to give Christians assurance, to give them uh, confidence. Uh, Romans 7, if it does apply, as I do believe it does to all Christians, uh, can be pretty discouraging. You know, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death, this kind of thing. Uh, the fact that we battle every day uh, with sin, that we battle and we lose. We don't have to, but we lose. Uh, the very thing that we hate, we do. Not just we, we theoretically, we actually do the things we hate. And the good things that we want to do, we don't do. Uh, can be very, very discouraging. Uh, there's, it's even so strong, Paul, uh, you know, sees this tendency is so strong in him that he calls it a law. It's like this, this law, like the law of gravity inside me at work in my members, uh, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. That's the wretchedness that we face. And who will deliver us from this body of death can be very, very discouraging. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're going to swim in thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord throughout Romans 8. But he ends up, Romans 7, um, 
so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I'm still serving the law of sin. So then we go from that into Romans 8. And the opening declaration of the chapter is very famous. It's well known, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We move from no condemnation to, if I could just summarize the last few verses, no separation. There's no separation uh, that will ever happen from the, between us and the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from God's love. So that's assurance. No condemnation, no separation. That's the whole chapter. So we're going to just walk through all of that. Um, so what is the significance of that statement? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How does that encourage you? Just, I hope it does. I mean, let's... Uh, you know, perk up in the middle of our day here. It's like, I would think that would be incredibly encouraging. How so? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Encouraging. What is the significance of that word condemnation and then for it to be said no condemnation? What is what is condemnation? Yeah, I mean, I think the decree, uh, the statement of condemnation would sound something like this. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's Jesus, the judge of all the earth, declaring you condemned. And then what follows is the condemnation. Angels are dispatched, tie them hand and foot, throw them outside in the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's condemnation. All right, and we could, we could dig into that and we will in subsequent weeks, but there is no condemnation. That is not going to happen to you. You will not be condemned on judgment day. There's no condemnation. Is this universalism? be an easy question to answer. There's no condemnation for anyone. Period. Wes, it's an easy softball. What do you think? This is, no, it's not universal. Okay, who is it talking about? It's not talking about every single solitary human being on planet Earth. Who is it talking about? Yep, believers. How do we know that? Yeah, I mean, the verse says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right? So the question you have to ask is, are you in Christ Jesus or not? And he goes on from that to say, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Uh, for uh, God has done uh, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's Jesus' death on the cross. And in that way, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk or live our daily lives not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that's a more full description of the people for whom there's no condemnation. How does Paul characterize them in verses uh, 2 through 4? So the word walk implies your daily life, the way you live your life day to day. That's what the word walk uh, implies. And we walk not uh, according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Then in verses 5 through 11, he describes that more carefully. Basically, in verses 5 through 11, he is describing two ways to live. The way uh, of the flesh versus the way of the spirit. If you live according to the way of the flesh, you will die. Now, that means be condemned, I think, putting the whole thing together. You will be condemned to eternal death. Um, you're living out spiritual death now, and you'll be condemned to eternal death later. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. That's what it means to walk not uh, but according to the flesh, but according to the uh, spirit. Uh, he also uh, says in verse 4, in order that the righteousness of the law, or the righteous commands, the righteous requirements of the law, might be fulfilled in us. 
What does that mean? In order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but the flesh. This way, if you could sum up the law in, let's say, two kind of main points, um, how would you sum them up? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Would that be, would you think, a good summary of the law? All right, I think you're on good, solid ground there, all right? Because that's exactly how Jesus summarized it. Do you think that Paul possibly means that here, that those two commandments will be fulfilled in you if you walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh? I think so. Paul's going to later say in Romans uh, 13, I think it is, the commandment, uh, love your neighbors yourself, all the commandments of the law are fulfilled. Those horizontal commandments are fulfilled in that one command, love your neighbors yourself. So that's going to fulfill at least that horizontal aspect, the vertical, more important, first and greatest commandment. So in other words, the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in you, in your daily life, in your daily walk. You will love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You will love your neighbors yourself as you walk according to the Spirit. And we know not perfectly, but that's uh, what he's talking about. Now we, we look at verses 5 through uh, five through 11. Um, and what does he say there about two ways to live? I, just read over. I'll, I'll read this again and think, as I'm reading these verses again, how do you see two ways to live here? All right? I'm in Romans uh, 8, 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh... But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those in the, in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All right, so as you look at those verses, how do you see basically two different ways to live? In the flesh or in the spirit. Okay, those are the headings. How, how do we understand that? How do we characterize life in the flesh versus life in the spirit? Starts with that, with the gospel. But he focuses right away on the mind. You see that? The importance of the mind. All right? Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Right? And those who live uh, in the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. What does that mean to have your mind set on the flesh versus the mind set on the spirit? I think the description, if, if, if you were to push me to say, okay, can you, are there any other biblical descriptions of what a life in the flesh looks like according to these, this category? A life in the flesh, I think the best would be Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Actually, someone read that. I think that will describe, especially verse 2, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 will describe the life in the flesh. No, I mean, that's, but that's the life of the flesh. You're controlled by Satan. Going after the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, all that stuff, all right? Um, you have a corrupt mind leading to a corrupt life. You're, you're living dead. You're dead while you live, all right? So you have no relationship with God, and, and yet you're biologically, physically alive, and you're doing things, but they're all death. It's just the works of death. 
uh, the, the works of, of the world, of, of the lusts of the world and all that, and you're living it out in that particular way. So I think that's the most succinct description of the life in the flesh. But then in, the, uh, uh, in, in Galatians 5, he gives uh, the, the works of the flesh, maybe Wes, you could do that for us, I think it's in 19 through 21, right before the fruit of the Spirit. Um, so that would also be a, a very you know, apt litany of uh, what life in the flesh looks like. All right, so that, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, that's what life in the flesh looks like. So we're talking about somebody who's dead in their transgression, since they're not converted. Right, we're not talking about Christians that are struggling with sin. We're talking about people in the flesh. So in the flesh, uh, using earlier language, is somebody who is in Adam, not in Christ. They're dead, spiritually. And that's why he's saying decisively, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. So it's one or the other. You are either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. You're either spiritually dead or you're spiritually alive. You're either a non-Christian or you're a Christian. You're either unregenerate or regenerate. There's not a third option. Again, we're not talking about the higher life here. We're not talking about moving over from Romans 7 into Romans 8 in the Keswick sort of way. If you could just understand these things, you will you, you spend much of your time in Romans 7, but now I'm going to have you under Romans 8. Paul doesn't think that way. You're either lost or found. You're either dead or alive. Do you see that? He's saying, you, however, are in the Spirit if the Spirit's in you. You're in the Spirit if the Spirit's in you. And if the Spirit's not in you, what does he say about you? But if, if anyone does not, all right, sorry, verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. See that? Right. So that's what I was getting at. What does it mean that you do not belong to Christ? You're, you're not a Christian. If you don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. That's why I just am against this higher life thing where you got carnal Christian versus whatever, and you got you know, he's saying very plainly in verse 9. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ living inside you, you're not a Christian. You do not belong to him. And so it's very black-white here. You're either outside of Christ or in Christ. You're either in the flesh or in the spirit. That's why the NIV's translation here is not helpful. Because it, it adds the, uh, the language of control. You, however, control, by, not by the flesh, but the spirit, if the spirit. That's not, that's not what we're talking about, the control aspect. I don't deny the control, but he doesn't use that language. He's saying in. You're in the spirit or in the flesh. It's, it's really black or white, finer. And that's what you have to see. If you are a Christian, the spirit of Christ is in you. And if the spirit of Christ is in you, what does the rest of the chapter tell you? You're going to end up conformed to Christ. Why? Because you were predestined for that, right? You're going to win. You're going to end up in heaven. And in heaven, you will be perfectly conformed to Christ. And I think that should encourage you. In the midst of all that Romans 7 struggle, you should know that you were predestined before the foundation of the world to be conformed to Christ, and he doesn't lose anybody. We'll get to all that later in Romans 8, but that's what he's saying. If the Spirit is in you, you are in Christ, etc. But he also characterizes it. It's the mind. You know, that's, you look at the mind. The mind of the flesh, he characterizes here as hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the mind of the flesh hates the law of God. It, will, it refuses it. It's rebellious against it. Foundationally rebellious. No lost person 
basically loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's just not true. They do not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They do not love their neighbors themselves. That's the law of God. They don't submit to it. They're hostile to it. They hate it in various ways. Not everybody hates it the same way, but if they're hostile, they're hostile. That's what he's saying. You, however, in the spirit, you're not hostile to the law of God. He said, even in the struggle chapter, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. It's beautiful to me. I yearn to fulfill it. If I hear from a pastor that someday I'm going to perfectly fulfill it in heaven, I love that kind of a talk. Tell me more of that kind of stuff. When I get to heaven, I'm going to perfectly fulfill the two great commandments. Well, guess what? You will. You will. Isn't that awesome good news? In heaven, you're going to love God with all, all every fiber of your being forever. And you're going to love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. That's what heavenly life is. You're going to end up that, that, you're going to end up that way. The mind, the mind of the spirit loves or delights in the things of God. And that's what he's saying there. Okay, so two different ways to live. The uh, Being in the flesh means dead in your transgressions and sins. Going after the things of the world. Going after the things that God says he hates. That's that life. The life in the flesh. Versus the life in the spirit. Okay, so we've been saying in the spirit. But what, what do we mean by the spirit? How do we understand that, that term, the Spirit? Because, again, he didn't mention the Spirit at all in the latter part of Romans 7. He, he doesn't even get mentioned. He does get mentioned in verse 5, 7, 5. Um, you know, those who walk according to, not in the old way of the, of the uh, law, but the new way of the Spirit. But then he leaves the topic of the Spirit aside, and then I think that's the whole point in Romans 7 is, apart from the Spirit, we're going to act like we're still enslaved. Now we're bringing in the spirit. What does it mean when he means when he says in the spirit? What is the spirit? The whole, all right, Holy Spirit. Although I don't think that title is used here, but I'm totally no, fine with it. No, when I think spirit, I think Holy Spirit. Sure. So, we hear the word spiritual thrown around all the time right now. I'm like, I don't care if you're spiritual. You have a holy spirit. What do you think? Are you all spiritual people? You know, or or like being in the spirit of Christmas. You know, like that kind of thing. We're kind of immersed in the in the spirit of the, ho the holiday spirit. Is that it? No, no, no. I forget. Yeah, we want to watch that. But it's not the holiday spirit or being in the spirit or teen spirit. It's none of that. All right? Uh, we're talking about the third person of the Trinity. We're talking about the infinite God living inside you. I mean, that's incredible when you think about it. Now, there's different terms uh, noted here in verse 9, just the Spirit in verse 9, see that? And then it says, Spirit of God, right? Same verse. And then Spirit of Christ. What in the world? Why so many different titles? We have just the Spirit, then Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ. How do we understand all this? And you mentioned the Holy Spirit, which is in another place. Not mentioned here, but... We must imagine not seven members of the Trinity here, but there's just a just one third person of the Trinity with different names. These are interchangeable names. The Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, all the same. Alright, so what is the significance of the fact that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is living inside you? And how is it relevant to the Christian life? think so. <laughs> How powerful is the third person of the Trinity? Just as powerful as the second person and just as powerful as the first person. I mean, the spirit living inside you is almighty God living inside you, dwelling inside you. 
it is because of that that you're guaranteed to succeed. The Spirit is not just passively hoping. The Spirit is powerfully working in you. The Spirit is dispatched by the Father and the Son to apply the work of Christ, the blood of Christ, the finished work of Christ to you personally, individually, to finish your salvation. And he is very good at his job. As a matter of fact, he's every bit as good at his job as Jesus was at his, and the Father was at his. He had a different role. Father plans, Jesus executes, the Spirit applies. He paints the blood on the doorposts and lintels of your heart. He moves Jesus, he moves the message of Christ out to the ends of the earth. He's extremely effective at evangelism, extremely effective at conversion, and extremely effective at sanctification. All of that is the work of the Spirit, and he's not going to lose. So that's a powerful thing. The Spirit is in you. And if you don't have the Spirit, we already covered that in verse 9. You're not a Christian. I'm not talking about a higher life here, a better life, a superior life, or any of that stuff. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God is living in you. Conversely, if the Spirit of God is not living in you, you are not a Christian. And that's what he's getting at. Now, we're going to find out next, uh, somebody read 12 through 17, um, and the application of that. Awesome. So these are incredible verses. All right? So he says, um, you know, and I didn't say much about 9 through 11, but he talks about the body, and we'll, we'll get to that when we walk through these carefully. But your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is life because of righteousness. All that means is that there's a principle of death at work in our mortal body. It's what's called mortal. They're dying. And these mortal bodies are going to cause you trouble while you live in them. You're going to have to battle their drives and, and weaknesses and problems. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But there's a weakness, and you're going to have to fight that. And that's going to happen, all right? Unless we are part of the final generation, unless your feet are still on planet Earth, when Jesus comes in the clouds, you're going to die. So we're under that death sentence, and uh, we're going to have to face that. But God has plans for your body. He's going to raise up your body in the pattern of Christ's glory for now, uh, brothers, we are debtors. We are debtors, but not to the flesh. But we, don't owe, we don't owe the flesh anything. We've already spent enough time, Peter tells us, doing fleshly things. You don't need to do any more of that. You don't owe the flesh anything, but you owe Jesus everything. So what is the significance of this debt language? We are debtors. How do you understand this concept of being a, a debtor? Here's another one, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. What does that mean? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. What does that language mean? You are not your own. That's slave language. Your own. You got bought. Who bought you? Christ did. And what did he pay? His blood. So we are bought, we are, we owe him. We owe him everything. Alright? And that's the language here. We're debtors. But we don't owe the flesh anything. That's the language here. We do not owe the flesh anything, but we owe Christ everything. Now some would say that's just not a good way to think of sanctification. Look, I didn't write verse 12. It's here. It says debtors. Paul used debt language in chapter 1 to talk about his obligation to lost people. He owes them the gospel. So he has that debt feeling toward lost people. So that it's the, the debt the mentality is actually biblical, though I know it's dangerous. We're not on a mortgage here paying off our salvation. That is not true. We're not on a work thing. But Paul does use debt language. We are debtors. And so there's a sense of obligation. We have an obligation. And the obligation here is holiness. 
See what I'm saying? That's what's going on here. The obligation in chapter 1 is evangelism, mission. The obligation here is holiness. We're debtors. We owe it to Christ to be holy. That's what he's saying to some degree. Remember, this is all that section of what do we do with sin after post-justification. All right, so now that we have come to faith in Christ, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? No, no, no. We are debtors to Christ to be holy. We owe him holiness. There isn't just one image here. I mean, there's all kinds of images. We are slaves. We are sons. We are bride. Which is it? Can we be all of those things? Yes. It's because this is complex. So you are slaves in some sense. You are sons in some sense. You are bride and he's bridegroom in some sense. All of those things are valid. It's all, they're all important. But here we have that debt language. But it's not to the flesh. Why? Because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does that mean? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does he mean by die? will die in the future. All right? Which is what? It's depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. It's the lake of fire. It's hell. If you live that life of the flesh, if you are, you have that mind of the flesh which hates God and hates God's law, the end of that is death. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. That's what we're talking about. It's hell. So if you are immersed in the flesh life and you're whatever, if, you, if that's who you are, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you do put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, what does that mean? This is a very, very significant verse, probably the most significant verse on negative sanctification. Remember that sanctification breaks into two categories, negative and positive. Negative are things you must kill, things you must not do in the Christian life, things that are evil that you, you should crush and kill. Positive is fruit of the Spirit type things. Love, joy, peace, patience, beautiful, virtuous things that are like Jesus. Those two things together make up sanctification. This is negative here. You are called on to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. What does that mean? It's called mortification. What does that mean? Mortify the deeds of the body, the evil works of the body, whatever they are. And the Bible, the New Testament, gives us a sin list so we can know what we're talking about. All the lists of sins that Wes read in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, that whole list, put all those things to death. Okay, put them to death. And then the other sin list, all of them, put them to death, mortify them. But it says, if you, by the Spirit, mortify, what does it mean by the Spirit to mortify? So, first of all, we're told here we have an obligation. Our obligation is to mortify, to kill. So we we are under orders here to kill, but we're told to do it by the Spirit. That's the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8. What does it mean to kill good deeds of life by the Spirit? Very true. And, and earlier, we, we talked about the mind, right? The mind of the flesh versus the mind of the spirit. All actions start with the mind. Flash heart. How you think. If you do something wrong, you always thought something wrong first. You loved something wrong first. So you have to, like you said, you have to hunt it out. You have to root it out. 
I, I, there's a deep mystery here. Uh, John Owen wrote an entire book on mortification based on this one verse on page 13, which is key. All right, so uh, by the Spirit. So there is a mysterious cooperation between the regenerate Christian and the indwelling Holy Spirit on the matter of sanctification. We are cooperating together in a mysterious way. Probably the clearest verses on this partnership is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where Paul says, So then, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good purpose. That says it all. God works holiness in you first, and then you work it out in your life. We are, he is the initiator here. We are the respondent. How do you see that in verse 14? He the initiator, and we the respondent. Let me read 13 and 14 together. But let's hear it on 14. Let me read 13 and 14. So, what is the connection between verse 13 and 14? First of all, is there a logical connection between verse 13 and 14? There is. How do you know there is a logical connection between these two verses? There's a four there. Thank you. So that four says, that I'm, I'm going to explain more about how you can put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit for those who are, what? Led by the Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit in this context. Led by the Spirit. Leader, we are the respondent. You can never do any work of holiness if the Spirit didn't move in you first, ever. He's always ahead of you. He's like the pillar of fire going out, and you're following him. That's what he is. The Spirit's leading out. You are following him. Or as Paul says in Galatians, to keep in step with the Spirit. He's telling you what to do. He's causing you to move out. And it's violent language here. You're mortifying, you're killing sin. You're supposed to go out like on a mission. Like, you remember the story about Jonathan and his armor bearer where, you know, he goes out and kills a bunch of Philistines? Remember that? It's just him and his armor bearer, just the two of them, like on a commando mission. Kind of a cool story, Jonathan. Jonathan's great. I love Jonathan. Remember? He's like, all right. The Philistines say, come up and we'll teach you a lesson. Then God's given them into our hands. Remember, it's like, come on up. We'll get, all right, we're on. It's on. It, he's like, we're going to win. But you get that sense of they're following the lead of the Spirit. They're taking and they're going into enemy ter territory and they're killing things. Now, how does that relate to sin? Well, there's so many ways we could relate. Jesus said, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. So go find hands to cut off in your life. It's not literal, physically, you know that. And what am I cutting off? I'm finding things that cause me to sin. And I'm cutting them out of my life. I'm at war with them. I'm, I'm on a war path. It's a campaign that I'm on here. How long is that going to last, by the way, that campaign? The rest of your life. And if you're not at war with indwelling sin, then what can we learn from the verses we've been studying here? If, you're, if you are not being led by the Spirit to mortify, what do we know is true of you? You're in the flesh, meaning what? You're not a Christian. So that means every single genuinely born-again person is warring against their sin. All of them. Not some of them, all of them. Now, I know we're not doing it as well as we should. I understand that. But, but don't you get the sense that verse 14 is saying only those who are led by the Spirit to mortify are sons of God. 
These are the only ones who are sons of God. It's very exclusive. I think you can add that mentally. I don't think we should add anything actually. But in your mind, only those who are led by the Spirit of God to mortify are sons of God. So this is not, it's not optional. That's all I'm saying. It's not optional. It's like the higher level of Christians are mortifying. The rest of us are very average, mediocre ones who are going to limp our way to heaven. That is not what he's saying. saying if the Spirit's in you, he's going to be leading you. We'll talk more about these details, but that's what he's, he's saying. So, uh, having, having said that, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Uh, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay? So this gets into our whole adoption. Remember, I believe the, whole, the purpose of the whole chapter is give you assurance and confidence in your battle against sin. How would this concept of adoption being adopted in the family of God give you assurance. Yeah, I think it's a logical error. Say, on the basis of your mortification, will your sins be forgiven? I don't read that here. Like, you know, and that's, that's the essence of legalism, is that present and future obedience to God's law will pay for past disobedience. Will it? If I obey today or tomorrow, will that pay for yesterday's disobedience? What can pay for yesterday's disobedience? There's only one thing. The blood of Christ shed on the cross and your faith in that. There is no other payment for sin. So that's what we went through with justification by faith and alone. So I would understand if saying this is more of a descriptor. If this is characteristic of you, you're a child of God. If, on the other hand, it's not, you're not. So I wouldn't say it's because of this our sins are forgiven. You want to say more? Well, I mean, with Luther, I'm just going to say it's an epistle of straw, so we don't really have to worry about it. <laughs> no, I mean, James is saying you've got to see. I think fundamentally the works prove the validity of the faith. Yeah, the works are going to be there. If there are no works of mortification, based on these verses, what can we say? No works of mortification, what can we say? There's no faith. There's no salvation. They're, it's not a real faith. That's what James is getting at. i got to see some real works. And Paul would say, I agree with you, James. And James, they agree. They're best buds. They eat together every night at, at the Lord's, you know, up there in heaven. They're, they're not enemies. They, they totally agree. They're just saying it different ways. But they would agree that some of the works that James is talking about are these works of mortification. They're not the only works, but they are some of the works. I gotta see it. You can't just claim to be a believer and not mortify. That's what he's saying. So that's, that's a good point. Now, back to the question of assurance. Jesus said, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. John 8, right? If you are a child of God, you're permanently in the family. That's assurance. Don't you see that? It, you're, you're in forever. You've been adopted. He's not gonna change his mind. That should give you complete assurance. Well, how do I know that I'm adopted? Well, these verses answer that. The Spirit in you tells you that you are. Right? Isn't that what these verses say? The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. The Spirit is in us crying out, Abba, Father. And that gives us assurance. So we're not on probation here trying to earn our place in the family of God. We are in. We are actually children of God. And that's what he's saying here. You did not receive the spirit of slavery which would be, I think, Richard, trying to earn it out. 
Imagine if God said, I want you to know you're on 10 year probation. We'll see how you do. Say, well, what are the rules of the game? Mortification. How would you feel about that? How would you feel that your heaven or hell depended on your personal track record in mortification? Like, yeah, it would be slavery, terror, hatred, fear every moment. If you want to know what that's like, read Roland Bacon's testimony of what Luther's life is like. You're scrubbing floors and praying and fasting and starving yourself to death, and it's never enough. That's slavery to fear. Fear of what? I would say in this context, fear of hell. Fear of being condemned. But we're not in that anymore. We're out. We're free. We've been set free. And we are now adopted. And we're in the family of God. We didn't receive that kind of spirit to fall back into, into slavery. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Notice the significance of that phrase, Abba, Father. It's pretty endearing. It's a sweet phrase. What do you make of that, Abba, Father? Absolutely. I mean, it's what Jesus said when he prayed in Gethsemane in Mark's Gospel. Abba, Father, all things are possible if you take this stuff from me. Think about that. So the Spirit of Christ is in you crying the same thing to your Father. He's your Father. And Jesus said, go, I go to your Father and my Father to your God and my God. That's incredible. That's after his resurrection. We have the same Father, the same God. We're in the same family. That should give us absolute assurance. But we're called on to act like it, right? And part of it is to be holy. To be holy like he is. That's conformity to Christ. And so the Spirit is in us, crying, Abba, Father, saying we're children of God. You're not on performance. You're not in slavery. But you need to be holy. And he says, like, we, we've got the spirit of spirit of, of him who, uh, you know, is, is in us. Uh, Abba, Father, the spirit uh, bears witness with our spirit. By the way, how does the spirit bear witness with our spirit? Is that we are children of God. What does that mean? The spirit bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. Yeah, let's talk about that suffering. Now, we are, uh, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. Uh, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs or fellow heirs with Christ. So the idea is we haven't come into our full inheritance yet. We're still, we haven't received. And, and uh, the, the inheritance language is heaven. It's, um, it's, it's everything. It's getting all the promised things that you don't have. Your resurrection body, new heaven, new earth, all of that. No death, mourning, crying, and pain, that whole world. All that. That's heirs. We get, we get all that. We get the earth. The mutual and the earth here. We get all that. But we're heirs with Christ. All right? And that's coming. All right? Fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Now, what is the suffering that he's talking about? Suffering with Christ. Is that the kind of suffering that's common to every human being? Or is there a unique suffering that only Christians experience that Paul means here? Suffering with Christ. So mortification is suffering. And we've already said non-Christians don't mortify. Right? I mean, they don't mortify the right way. And there's definitely, there's definitely legalistic mortification that self-flagellating people did or whatever. That's false. But Genuine mortification, they don't do it. Is there suffering involved in that mortification? Well, yes, there is. And the author of Hebrews says that Jesus suffered when he was tempted. Wow, that's a pretty strong statement there. Jesus suffered when he was tempted. So I think there are two kinds of suffering. Two kinds of suffering. 
the Christian experience of non-Christian films. And they have to do with the two journeys. The internal journey of holiness and the external journey of gospel advance or evangelism and mission. Right? So let's take the second. What kind of suffering do Christians have in the external journey of evangelism and mission that non-Christians don't have? Persecution, hostility, you're testifying to the gospel and people are persecuting. It's not the same all over the world, but some places much worse than others. But, you know, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, including evangelism, will be persecuted. Non-Christians don't experience that. They experience other kind of hostility. They experience crime. They go to war. You know, there's all kinds of terrible stuff. That's not what this is talking about. We're not talking about cancer or poverty or being in, in the line of a hurricane or a tornado. Those are sufferings common to all people. That's not what I think Paul's talking about here. Suffering with Christ here is suffering for holiness. In, in um, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad. That's suffering for external journey stuff. That's suffering because you're a Christian. That's suffering because you're standing for Christ. That's Paul being beaten in every town he went in. That's suffering with Christ in the external journey. All right? I think both of them are okay to think about. If you suffer with Christ, then you will also uh, be glorified. I wouldn't include it here. I think it would be more James. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of various kinds. And that we are called on to suffer better than non-Christians. Those same things they go through. Like the cancer diagnosis. You go down to Big Duke, and you've got a, a, a waiting room of 15 people all with the same diagnosis. X percent are Christians and Y percent not Christians. The Christians should suffer better than the non-Christians, right? They should suffer with hope, not afraid of death, right? So that they can witness. I don't necessarily think that's what Paul's meaning here, but I, do, I, do, I think that's valid, Wes. I think it's a valid way to live. I think that's us on a pedestal, you know, shining our light in darkness. Okay. Absolutely. And, and uh, a beautiful statement here, as you can see in, um, in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Whatever is my profit, I now consider loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness, not righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and what fellowship is sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's beautiful. I want to join Jesus in his suffering. I think it's the same thing that the author of the Hebrews gives us in Hebrews 13 when he says, Jesus suffered outside the gate, bearing the reproach. So we should stand with him outside the gate, meaning be rejected by the city of Jerusalem. Go stand with him. Bear his reproach. Be willing to be hated for his name. So that's external journey suffering. I think that's because I'm a Christian, because I'm witnessing, I'm, sh I'm shining the light. You know, the reason Jesus said, the reason the world hates me is I testify that what it does is evil. You testify to the world that what it does is evil, they will hate you. They'll hate you. All right? This suffering here is more just in context, seems to be more the suffering of mortification. And that's good to know, isn't it? How is it helpful to you to know? It's going to take suffering for you to grow in personal holiness. It's going to take suffering for you to put sin to death. It's going to be hard. How is that helpful to know? So if we have addictions, right? Addictions to 
lust, addictions to materialism, addictions to sinful anger, uh, through habitual patterns, all right? We're convicted of it. We want to live better. We want to be a different man, different woman a year from now. What's that journey going to look like? Let me, let me give a specific example. Okay? Something that's common to all of us, I think. The problem of pride. Okay? Let's say you've come to the conclusion that pride is the biggest problem in your life. Biggest problem in your marriage, biggest problem in your relationships with other people. Okay? You go to God and say, Lord, whatever you need to do in my life over the next three years to make me a genuinely humble person, What's the difference between being humble and being humbled? I mean, that's just one letter. What's the difference between being humble and being humbled? So what does it mean to be humbled? You put in circumstances that are humbling. Humbling. <laughs> right. Right, right. But you guys both know the world of difference between being humble and being humble. Nobody wants to be humble. Because it's not something you're doing. It's something that's being done to you. Like if I intensified it and gave you a different word, humiliated. It's like nobody wants that. I don't want to be humiliated. Then I'd be ashamed. But imagine you say, all right, what does it take for me to be genuinely humble? What did it take Nebuchadnezzar? Would you say he was humble after those seven years? He was a lot more humble. Those who walk in pride, he was able to humble. What did that look like for him? Do you think his counselors kind of remembered when he was eating grass like a cow? I mean, think about that process. And it's like, I, I don't know that I could honestly pray to God whatever you need to do to make me a humble man three years or a humble woman three years from now. Do it. But that's what I mean by the suffering involved in actual sanctification. It is hard. It is hard. People are addicted to internet things. People are addicted to other things. Idols, they don't die easily. They've wrapped their tentacles around our hearts. And if you want to kill those idols, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. You could imagine, let's say, a parent that feels that maybe they had to idolize their kids. Any chance of that? Any chance there's mothers out there or dads that idolize their kids? Imagine praying this prayer. God, whatever I you need to do to help me realize those kids really belong to you and not to me, so that I don't idolize them, love them properly, please do it. Wow. Like, I don't know if I could pray a prayer like that. But whether you pray it or not, understand that's what God is doing. It's not like, like it's bad luck to pray a prayer like that. Now God heard it, and now he's going to start zapping you. He's already working on your idols. What you're doing is you're saying, I want you to do it. I want you to work on my idols. Anyway, I think that's the suffering here. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. So we got through the whole chapter. That's awesome, guys. I'm excited about that. I'm kidding. We didn't. But we got as far as, as, far as we could. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.